So nice to see all of you here tonight. No place I would rather be. We're just going to do one verse tonight. You can turn in your Bibles if you want to to Matthew chapter 2 verse 23. It'll take about three seconds to read, but if you would like to follow along, we would love that. I'll read to you in just a moment, Matthew 2, 23. And I do want to just extend one more welcome to all of you and maybe get you caught up just a little bit. Over the past few Sundays, we have been doing a mini-series of messages called Christmas Past and Future. And what we've been doing is showing how many elements of the first coming of Christ are really paralleled or even contrasted at the second coming of Christ to the earth. And tonight we're going to deal with one of the contrasts. And that is the fact that Jesus came to the earth in the form of a lowly baby, and will return in completely opposite fashion. But it's not just that Jesus humbled himself by coming in the lowly form of a baby. He didn't come appearing as royalty. He didn't come as a conquering hero. He came in utter plainness and ordinariness. He came to the earth intent on destroying one enemy, and that enemy is sin and death. He would accomplish this by his voluntary death on the cross to be the substitute sacrifice for all who would place their faith in him for the forgiveness of sin. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That God the Father made Jesus to be sin. Although Jesus was sinless, he was divine as the substitute For you and for me, who actually are the epitome of sin. And as part of accomplishing this work, Jesus didn't come to earth appearing as royalty. He didn't come as a conquering hero. He came to the earth appearing as the lowest of the low. And to prove this tonight, we'll consider just this one verse, Matthew 2, verse 23. This is several months after the birth of Christ. King Herod, the man hired by Rome to be king of Israel as part of Rome's occupation, he has attempted to kill Jesus, and Joseph led his little family to Egypt and to a Jewish settlement there until Herod died. And we pick up the story now, the last verse of Matthew 2, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The title of my message tonight is Jesus and His Coming Fame, but that's not how He began. And so I'd like to divide our thoughts into two very simple parts, Jesus the lowest of the lowly, and second, Jesus the greatest of the great. Jesus the lowest of the lowly, and Jesus the greatest of the great. We'll spend most of our time on this, Jesus the lowest of the lowly. Now we have to kind of understand a little bit of geography here because it's going to help us understand this verse. Jesus was taken in by his human adoptive father, Joseph. He's taken to Nazareth. This is in the southern part of the province of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. So if if the main part of Israel is here, Galilee is up farther to the north. It's 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, Nazareth was considered to be really outside the mainstream life of the Jews in Israel. They were, they were the odd ducks. They were different. In fact, Nazareth hosted a Roman garrison, and the Jews who lived there were sometimes even seen as traitors for being that close to the invaders of Israel. But beyond that, Nazareth was a place 
really considered to be where the rogues and the outcasts of society went. But Jesus going to Nazareth is said to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is a very interesting statement because there are no Old Testament prophecies that say that Jesus would be raised in the town of Nazareth. In fact, the town of Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament at all. So how is it that the prophets, plural, more than one, have said that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? Well, the first part of that answer is is fairly simple. Nazareth was a small, insignificant town, unlikely to be the hometown of anybody famous, anybody noteworthy. And so is it that just being called a Nazarene says, oh, he's from a small, insignificant town? That's part of it. But it's actually much worse than that. And we'll, we'll get to this. But really, again, the pressing question is, how can Jesus be said to be a Nazarene by the prophets of the Old Testament when no prophet actually said this? Well, let's break this down. First of all, prophets here is plural, meaning that he's making a collective statement. Matthew, the author of the book here, he's making a collective statement of several Old Testament prophets, and he doesn't have one specific Old Testament passage in mind. So there's multiple places he's thinking of. And the second thing we should note here is that Matthew does not use the usual quotation formula. He doesn't say saying he would be called a Nazarene, but that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, why is that important? Because it's not a quotation of a specific passage or set of passages, but it is a summary of a broad theme, a a broad idea. And what is this broad theme that Matthew is summarizing? Jesus would not come the first time with the expected royal bearing and the power of a kingly Messiah. Instead, he would come in lowliness and degradation and humiliation. So when Matthew says that what would be fulfilled by the prophets, what would be spoken by the prophets would be fulfilled, what might he have been thinking of? There's many places we could think of. I'll give you a few. Consider Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1, quoted by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the rest of the verse goes on to say, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Later in Psalm 22, prophetically, this is Christ speaking, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's the sarcasm of the people around the cross when they were watching Jesus die. And it's fulfilled prophetically in Christ. Or consider Psalm 22, verse 16 and 18. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Not only do we recognize that as a prophecy of exactly what happened at the crucifixion, but that account, a very detailed account of the method of execution called crucifixion, is written some 600 years before it was invented. Or consider Isaiah 52, verses 2 and 3, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What does that say? It says that Jesus, first of all, on a surface level, just wasn't particularly handsome. He was plain. He was ordinary. If you had been walking through a crowd, you would not have picked him out. You would not have said, oh, that must be the Messiah. Look at him. He's 6'2", perfect hair, everything. He was plain. But worse than that, he was despised. And prophetically, speaking from the vantage point of the Jews, we esteemed him not that his own people didn't recognize him. Or consider Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. This is the passage that says that the coming Messiah would be sold out for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver, and that this money would be thrown into the temple of the Lord, but then given to the potter. Now, what does that mean? Well, Matthew 27 records that after Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver given to him by the religious leaders of Israel, he regretted this. He regretted what he had done. And he tried to take the money back, but the chief priest wouldn't take it. And so Judas threw the money down into the temple and went and hanged himself. But the leaders didn't want blood money back, so they bought a piece of land called the potter's field. It was a place to bury strangers. So in their eyes, how much was Jesus worth? Some dead bodies. That's all he was worth. Matthew emphasizes Jesus coming from Nazareth as his hometown, as opposed to his birthplace, Bethlehem, a town called the city of David, the place where kings came from. Instead, he comes from Nazareth, the place where nobodies come from. Coming from Nazareth would be an embarrassment. Coming from Nazareth was akin to being called backwards or redneck or hillbilly or not really part of us or ignorant or no account or worthless or plain or lowly. And so to be very clear here, When Matthew says that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, he's not merely saying that Jesus would grow up in Nazareth. Nazareth Nazarene was an epithet. It was a derogatory nickname for someone who's backwards, who's a redneck, who's a hillbilly, who's not really part of us, who's ignorant, who's no account, who's worthless, plain, lowly. That he would be called a Nazarene is an insult. It is degrading. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he was calling his 12 disciples, Jesus went back to Galilee, the province in the north, same province where Nazareth was. And he found Philip from the city of Bethsaida, the same city on the coast of the Sea of Galilee that Peter and his brother Andrew were from. And Philip followed Christ, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And in his evangelistic concern, he went to Nathanael, and he said to him, as recorded in John 1.45, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But when Philip said the of Nazareth part, this offended Nathaniel. You remember what Nathaniel said? Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can almost hear the scorn and the sneer in his voice. Even demons look down on people from Nazareth. Did you know that? 
Luke 4.31 and following records that when Jesus was in Capernaum, another city in Galilee, he was teaching on the Sabbath day. And once again, the people were astounded at his teaching because he taught with authority. He didn't quote anyone. He was God. And so he quoted himself. Luke 4.33, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Jesus, the Messiah, did not come to earth with pomp and circumstance, splendor, pageantry. He came in no way like a great earthly king. In keeping with prophecy, he came as the loathed and shunned and scorned servant of the Lord. Jesus was not known as Jesus, the Bethlehemite, born in the royal city of David, the great king. Instead, Jesus was known as a Nazarene. A word said with a sneer, with mocking, with a smirk on the face. That is Jesus, the lowest of the lowly. And I got to tell you, this is wonderful news for us. Want to know why? Because who are we? Psalm 8 verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 103 beginning in verse 14, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. We are all dust. We're all grass that's just blown away by our own mortality. But Jesus came as the lowest of the lowly. He came to be like you. He came, as Hebrews 4.15 says, as one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. But make no mistake, the Nazarene was the Son of God, perfect and sinless. And therefore, He was the only sacrifice for sins that God would accept on your behalf to pay the rightful penalty for the countless sins you've committed against the Holy Lord God. And so at Christmas time, we're very familiar with this and we know that Jesus came as the lowest of the lowly. But the no account, the unknown, the plain, the lowly, the Nazarene will one day be fully known. Let's look at Jesus, the greatest of the great. Isaiah chapter 49 in the Old Testament pictures the Son of God speaking to Israel 700 years before his birth, by the way, and telling of the decree and the mission that God the Father has given to him. Verse 1 of Isaiah 49 says that God the Father would unite the Son of God with a human nature in the womb of a woman and would give him a human name, Jesus. This is human name. The verse 5 of Isaiah 49 says that the Son of God would eventually regather Israel as a nation. But what I want to point out is Isaiah 49, 7. Because in this one verse is contained the nature of the first coming of Christ and the nature of the second coming of Christ. All in one compact package. Listen to the first coming, the first half of Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. When Matthew was writing, Matthew 2.23, what do you call someone deeply despised and abhorred by his own nation, a Nazarene? 
But here's the second half of Isaiah 49, 7, describing the second coming of Christ. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. What this is saying is is that when Jesus returns at the end of the great tribulation that is yet to come, he's going to judge all the nations, meaning all the individuals in those nations who have refused to follow Christ. And then in his kingdom, he'll set up to be able to bless all the nations. Jesus is going to be famous. And in fact, from this one second half of the verse in Isaiah 49, 7, I'd like to show you three ways that his fame will be known worldwide just from this verse. First of all, his fame to the nations. Second, his fame to the kings of the nations. And third, his fame to the king of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. We can prove this from all over the Old Testament. I'm going to do it just from the book of Isaiah. That's all we need. Let's look first at Jesus' fame to the nations. And in fact, we have to subdivide this further. We'll see his fame in judgment and fame in his rule. His judgment and his rule. He's going to be famous to the nations first in his judgment. Isaiah 17, 13 says, The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. Isaiah 25, 3 says, Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Isaiah 29, 7 and 8, God promises Israel that all who fight against Jerusalem will eventually be to Israel just like a bad dream because Messiah will come and defend her. Isaiah 30, verse 28, Jesus will, quote, sift the nations with the sieve of destruction, turning them to powder. Isaiah 34, 2 says, The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. And how strong is Christ compared to all the nations on earth? Isaiah 40, verse 15, you ever wonder where this phrase comes from? Here it is. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. And they are accounted as the dust. How powerful will the Lord Jesus Christ be compared to the nations? Like this. Bloop. That's it. Isaiah 40 verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. You know what that means in Hebrew? Less than bloop. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And after Jesus has returned and wiped out every single one of his enemies, the survivors... Those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior will go out and see the result. Isaiah 66, 24 says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. But then Jesus will be famous in his rule, in his perfect benevolent rule over all the nations. Isaiah 42, 1, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Don't you long for justice? Don't you long for all things to be made right? That's what the Bible says Jesus will do. In fact, Isaiah 42, 6 calls Jesus the light for the nations. Isaiah 43, 9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. In other words, Christ is now the focal point for all people on earth. Isaiah 45, 20 gives an invitation. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. And the verse goes on to say that the gathering is to wipe away all spiritual ignorance and behold Jesus as the true and living God. Isaiah 52.10 says, All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All the ends of the earth is a phrase in the Bible that means everyone. 
Isaiah 52, 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. In other words, he'll spiritually cleanse the nations with righteousness, with holiness, with purity. Isaiah 60, verse 3, the nations shall come to your light. Isaiah 60, verse 6 says that the nations will send their gifts, the very best products of the land, a loving gift to Messiah. Isaiah 66, 19 says that God will send messengers all over the world to those, quote, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And by the way, Jesus will live up to another nickname that comes from Isaiah 9. That nickname is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 2, verse 4, he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And in fact, Isaiah 11.10 says that the nations will come to hear the wisdom of Christ. They'll inquire of him in what Isaiah calls his glorious resting place. But this isn't just a general principle that Jesus will be famous in the nations. This will also extend to the rulers of the nations, to the kings. There are a lot of people in the United States who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a far cry from that being the official position of our government, isn't it? But Jesus will be famous, secondly, to kings. Isaiah 24, 21 says, On that day the Lord will punish the host in heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. In other words, after the judgment of Christ on the earth, there will not be one single ruler left who is against Christ. Not one. Kings will no longer be arrogant. They will no longer be power hungry. Isaiah 52, 15, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. In other words, they're beholding God. Isaiah 60, verse 11, Kings will lead the processions of all the nations into Jerusalem to bring the wealth and the gifts of the nations to Christ. Isaiah 60, verse 3, Kings will come to the brightness of your rising Isaiah 66, 18. I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Can you imagine if every single governing official on earth wanted nothing but to see the glory of Christ exalted? But the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ is tied directly to the coming exaltation and fame of Israel. Since Jesus is, after all, the king of Israel, which will be the capital nation of the earth. And so we could also look from Isaiah at Jesus' fame as the king of Israel. Isaiah eleven twelve says, He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In other words, all the nations will be signaled to help regather Israel as a nation. How will this happen? Isaiah 49, 23 says, Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they bow low to you. They bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet that the rulers of the earth will love and they will serve Israel. Why? Because the king is there. Isaiah 62, 2 and 3, speaking of Israel, which is currently, by the way, statistically the most hated city on planet earth. Isaiah 62 says, The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. 
And in fact, at the end of the Great Tribulation, Jerusalem will be will we'll have some repair work to be done because there's lots of judgments been happening. Bad people have been there up until the moment Christ returns. So how are they going to rebuild? Isaiah 60 verse 10 says, Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you that the nations will gladly serve and build up Jerusalem. Isaiah 49 6 God the Father says to the Son, You shall be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And how about this? At the end of the Great Tribulation, there will be Jewish children, some of them orphaned, some by themselves for some reason. What's going to happen to them? Isaiah 49, 22, God says to Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. That the nations delight in physically bringing perhaps even the children, the boys and the girls who are Jews, to new Israel. Isaiah 60 verse 11 says of Jerusalem in this time, your gates shall be opened continually, meaning total safety. Unlock the door. No more alarm systems. Day and night they shall not be shut that the people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. And in Isaiah 60 verse 12, God issues a warning for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you, meaning Israel, shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. And in fact, the descendants of those who have hated Israel in the past will repent. They'll serve Christ and they'll demonstrate this by bowing at the feet of Jerusalem, as it were. Isaiah 60, verse 14, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Why will the nations, why will the kings be so gloriously loving to Israel? Because God decreed it. Isaiah 49, 7 again. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Can I say this? Don't be fooled by the fact that Jesus is called despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, or to put it in Matthew's day, the Nazarene. Because someday the nations and the kings of the earth will bow low to him, meaning that they have come to genuine faith in Christ. They are not among those who will be judged and condemned for all eternity for their rejection of Christ Jesus. When Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, it was the very first account of the life of Christ ever written down. Matthew was written about a decade after the ascension of Christ into heaven, very, very soon after. And it was written somewhere between the events of Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 12, which means that beyond that time, Christian Jews to whom Matthew was first written would be familiar with this Gospel. And listen, When they read that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, they knew what that meant. They knew what that meant. In fact, Acts 24 records that two decades or so after the writing of Matthew, the Apostle Paul was on trial before Governor Felix with the high priest of Israel trying to get Paul condemned 
As what? As a believer in Jesus Christ. And the wicked leaders of Israel sent a spokesman, kind of a prosecutor, you might say. His name was Tertullius. And the prosecutor was to make the case to Felix against Paul. And Tertullius accused Paul of being the leader of the Christians. And he had a nickname. He had an insult for all Christians. Tertullius stated to Governor Felix about Paul in Acts 24, 5, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That is what the unsaved called Christians. Nazarenes. Those who associate with the Nazarene. So here's the deal. If you associate yourself with the Nazarene, if you believe that Jesus came to earth in humble form and that he died a humiliating criminal's death on the cross in order to satisfy the payment for your sin on your behalf, for the wages of sin is death, then the Lord Jesus Christ will associate with you when he is famous and ruling the world in all of his coming glory. So that's the question. Will you be associated with the Nazarene? Because if you won't, the consequences are eternal. Mark 8, 38, the Lord Jesus himself said this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, in other words, when I'm here as the Nazarene, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is making a very simple statement. If you refuse to be in Christ, to be forgiven of your sins and to be associated with the Nazarene, then the Nazarene will not associate with you. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, Then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So to avoid this, you too must come as a Nazarene. You must be no account. You must be plain. You must be worthless. You must be humble. You must be lowly. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you bring nothing to God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or, I think Peter put it so well when he said in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let me put it to you this way. You exalt yourself now, God will humble you for all eternity. You humble yourself now, God will exalt you for all eternity. There are no other options. Those are the two. You must come to the Nazarene as a Nazarene. Because the Nazarene is now known as the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. He's now known as the Almighty God. He's now known as the Alpha and the Omega. He is now known as the beginning and the end. He is now known as the first and the last. He is now known as the one who died and lives forevermore. And if you will come as a Nazarene, you will be with him as he lives forevermore. That's my hope. That's my prayer. Don't leave Jesus in the manger because that's not where he is now. You know where he is now? 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there will be a day when a great sound is brought forth from heaven and an angel comes out of the temple of God in heaven because God has made a decree and the angel will command and say, now is the time. And Jesus, when he was on earth, said, no one knows the day or the hour except God the Father alone, not even the Son knows. And at that moment, God the Son will get off the throne of God and he will mount the white horse and he will return. And then, if you have not come to the Nazarene, it's too late. It is too late. Let it be said that Christmas Eve 2021, you came to the Nazarene. And then someday you'll see the king of all the kings. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now humbled that Jesus, the very Son of God, the glorious one who dwells in eternal light, came to earth as a Nazarene, as lowly, as worthless, as of no account, so humble, to be scorned, to be mocked, to be ridiculed. But Lord, you have told us that is the requirement to come to faith, that we must come with nothing. That we must come with our hands empty. We have no good works to bring. We must come with our eyes down. How dare we look into the eyes of holy God. We must come with our hearts shattered by our own sin and humbly bend the knee in worship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who came as a man to die on the cross to pay the rightful penalty for our sin which we could not pay. We give you praise, we give you thanks for providing payment for our sin so that someday we can be with Christ in his glorious kingdom. The one who will never again be in a manger but for all time will be on a throne. We praise you in Christ's name, amen.